In the pantheon of global activists, our own Kumi Naidu has few peers. He has devoted his life to human rights and climate justice activism, starting off with organizing student boycotts against the apartheid system at the age of 15, progressing to serve as executive director internationally of Greenpeace and as secretary general of Amnesty International. Please welcome a towering baobab in the world of people who actually give a shit. Friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, I must confess I'm very nervous <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, because these days when I speak at audiences, I sometimes get this reaction as I did from an audience in the United States recently where I was looking at where the world is and during the Q&A, a very upset delegate put up a hand and said, Dr. Naidu, have you heard of Martin Luther King? And I said, yes, he inspired many people in my country during the struggle against apartheid. And he said, Do you know what his most famous speech was called? Thinking it was a trick question, I answered very gently. I said, uh, I have a dream. And she shouted back at me. She said, yes, it was I have a dream. But when I hear you speak, you have a bloody nightmare. The forests are disappearing. The oceans are rising. Inequality is rising and so on. So therein lies one of the challenges of the moment of history that we find ourselves in. How do we speak truth to the power on the one hand, and how do we ensure that we do it in a way that does not immobilize, demotivate, and depress people? Because this moment of history that we find ourselves in is one where we must say very, very loudly that pessimism is a luxury we simply cannot afford. This. The second reason I'm nervous is because I follow this advice that my late mother gave me before she left me when I was a very young, age 15, where she said it's much better to be honest and unpopular than dishonest and popular. So I want to give you an early warning that there will be some unpopular things I'm going to say. And thirdly, I was trying to come up with a joke just you know, to start things off lightly, and I tested it with the folks at the registration and they really thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> so when I arrived, they were complaining about how cold it was and so on, and I said, yeah, where is global warming when we need it? <laughs> <laughs> but just to kind of start on an optimistic note, I want to say that bad as things sound, we must be very clear that the planet does not need saving, that the planet is just fine. If we continue, sorry, I've got a time restriction, don't clap for everything. <laughs> is it, because if we continue the, the, the path that we are on, end result is we destroy our water resources, we destroy our soil resources, we warm up the planet to a point we can't do agriculture, the end result is we will be gone, the planet will still be here. So all of you who are worried about saving the planet, just remember that once we become extinct as a species, the oceans will recover, the forests will grow back, and so on. So don't worry about saving the planet. Understand that the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change is nothing more and nothing less about saving our children and their children's futures. That is what is at stake. 
And we are living now in a constant, I told you don't clap. We are living in the most consequential decade in humanity's existence. What we choose to do in the next 10 years based on what the science has told us will determine what kind of future we will have. If we are to settle on the results of the current climate policies that are in place at the negotiations that happen, we are headed in the direction guaranteed of 1.7 or much, much higher. Now, I want to bring you into the conversation by asking you a question. When people say 1.5 degrees, how many of you feel you have a sense that you know what they're talking about? And if you don't know, don't feel shy. Keep your hands down. How many of you feel you know and keep your hands up? Okay, so if you look at the audience, please keep your hands up. Because the second question is coming for the people who got their hands up. Wow. Okay, I must say, we're in trouble. Because less than 10% know, but that's okay. Of the people that have their hands up, who know what we're talking about, how many of you know where we are now? Towards that 1.5 degrees? About three people. So okay, let me put you out of the misery. When... Because let me just identify one of the problems we have to fix if we're going to come up with a climate solution. You've got to sort out people like myself, right? Because what we have done for the last decades is we spoke about climate as an environmental issue, when in fact we should have understood climate is a cross-cutting issue, right? We put it in an environmental box, which meant that it got a particular frame, and we need to break out of that very, very urgently. Now, when we're talking about 1.5 degrees, basically it's saying that since the start of the Industrial Revolution, since we started burning oil, coal, and gas, from that moment into history, into the future, sorry, we cannot afford a more than 1.5 degree warming. That is what the science has said. Before we end up with catastrophic, runaway, irreversible climate change. The second question was, where are we towards that 1.5? The person who had their hands up, do you want to shout the answer? Okay, so I heard 1.1 and 1.2, so just to kind of balance things, we'll say it's somewhere in between. But understand that these figures, when they give it, it's a global average. It doesn't mean that that's the level of warming you're having in hot places like Africa, for example. Okay. So what have people been chanting around the world already in 2015? They've been chanting 1.5 to stay alive. 1.5 to stay alive. That was a slogan I heard as the head of Greenpeace in the Pacific, in small island states. And six months later, when I met the same people at the Paris climate negotiations, and they pulled me into a small event they were having, and I was proudly going to chant 1.5 to stay alive, they go like this, no, 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 no. The slogan has changed. And the new slogan is, 1.5, we might survive. So let's be very, very clear that we are witnessing the devastating impacts of climate change. And in my home city, Durban, last year in April, when that rain bomb hit in two days and 400 people lost their lives and millions and millions and millions in infrastructure damage and livelihoods lost, let's be clear that the climate crisis is with us right now and is taking lives right now. And the fact that our political leadership has acted with such limited urgency, it's a source of desperate shame. 
So we, if, but if we analyze the climate crisis, the climate crisis is also fundamentally a consumption crisis. We have far too many people in the world who consume too little and far too few people in the world that consume too much. And our country, sadly, has the highest Gini coefficient in the world and our country is the most unequal in the world. And if we want to be serious about addressing climate change, you cannot call your climate, yourself a climate activist or somebody who's on the right side of history if you are not willing to look at the reality that if all the people in the world were to have the kind of lifestyles that middle-class people in the global south and the people in the rich countries of the world have, we would need between five and eight planets. So what is needed is a fundamental rethinking of the problem we find ourselves in. And I want to suggest to you that the worst disease that we face in the world today is not COVID. It's a disease you could call affluenza. Yeah, affluenza, not influenza. This current economic system has given us the worst global disease you can imagine, and South Africa is in desperate need of a cure. Affluenza is a pathological illness where we've been led to believe that a good, meaningful, decent life comes from more and more and more and ever more material acquisitions. And seriously, our political class has a bad, bad dose of affluenza. So within this context, we have to understand that actually we have a climate crisis partly owing to the greed that has been built in and institutionalized within our politics and economics. A greed crisis which is pushed by an economic system that is completely broken and therefore everything that comes out of that, our energy system, our transport system, our agriculture system and so on, all suffer deep deficits. So given where we are now, we desperately need to draw on some basic historical wisdoms that have been looking at us in the face. First and foremost for our country, it might be good for us as we get close to the election next year to remind ourselves of the words of Albert Einstein when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting to get different results. I hope I am quite clear in what I am saying. What we need now is a spirit of what Martin Luther King called creative maladjustment. When I was five months old, he gave a speech which went something like this. He said, my friends, as I come to the end of my speech, I want to note that in the field of modern child psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted. Now, all of us want to be well-adjusted and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental problems. But my friends, I say to you, there are certain things in this world that are so unjust and immoral that good, decent people should refuse to be well-adjusted to. He goes on to say, I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry, racial discrimination. And on the economy, he says, I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few when millions of God's children are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society, unquote. If that was relevant to the United States in 1965, it's a thousand times more relevant to them as well as to all of us around the world today. So what is to be done? I want to be provocative here and hope that the advice my mom gave me when I was 15 doesn't get me in too much of trouble. So first I say, we must remind ourselves what Mandela said 
in one of the debates before the first election. He said, when we take power as the ANC, I will cut my salary drastically. And more so, we will make sure that the ANC members of parliament will live the lives that the people live, will live in the communities where they live, will use the public services that the people use, not that they will offer the people one set of services and go and guarantee that, including electricity supply when everybody else is suffering from load shedding. So, if we have a leadership that has run away from the people and lived lives that are completely divorced from the majority of people, how are they going to understand the pain and reality that our people are safe, facing? And let me say safely to the ANC, in particular, you live very, very far away from the constituency that puts you in power. If you have any chance of finding your truth, get back to where your people come from. Secondly, given the performance of the members of parliament up to now, right? Uh, sorry, the cabinet, members of parliament, and um, the top ranks of the senior uh, civil service, given that you have acknowledged that we have an electricity crisis, an emergency in the country, then please understand that an emergency didn't just happen, that you have to take responsibility for the mess that we find ourselves in. And the best way you can take responsibility is to recognize your fraudulence, your corruption, your incompetence, and reduce your salaries by at least 50% if you want to get any credibility with the people of South Africa. Now, if you look at the cycles of power after a liberation struggle, we must understand that the next election is extremely terrifying. Because I believe that many in the leadership of the ANC or those that are uh, surviving in the worst pockets of the ANC, and by the way, let me just say it's fashionable for everybody to say everybody in the ANC is all bad. If everybody was in the ANC is all bad, we would have a nuclear deal with Russia at the moment. Right? So the challenge for us is, how do we find the very few numbers of people that have been fighting, and they are in a declining number, very, very fast declining. And how do we make common alliance as civil society to be able to actually try and recover things? But if the ANC gets into power in any shape or form in the next election, if you think we've had lots of looting in the last 25 years, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because they will know that the writing is on the wall and they will loot like nothing else. So that is what I am saying quite clearly. If you want to address the climate crisis, we need a complete different orientation of our politics. And let me just say, all of those people who are watching this online or maybe even people in the audience are thinking that this is an endorsement of the existing uh, characters in the political galaxy that we have here, the whole political class is corrupt right now. Let's admit it. Let's admit it, the whole political class is corrupt right now. Right? How many of them have taken on an appeal made by civil society over the last three years to have a discussion in parliament on a climate justice charter that has been drawn up by civil society? And right now, let me use this platform to make that call on 
parliament, to all the members of parliament of whichever political party, please do as our constitution allows us to do. Let's have a serious public conversation in parliament about the climate crisis and our energy crisis specifically. Right? And do not, do not do what you are planning to do, President Ramaphosa. Do not move ahead with the car power ship deal. This is simply a corrupt looting exercise. And let's, let's be clear, let's look at some of the facts about car power ship. One is it'll be two or three times more than renewable energy. Already, total energies in Saldana Bay has got community liaison offices in numbers that no NGO can actually compete with, going in to corrupt and to send an alternative message about all the benefits. We have seen these companies do the same thing as they did in the Transkai where people lost their lives fighting for against the Australian company that was pushing mining there. So, my appeal to President Ramaphosa, as you know, he's got full powers today. He doesn't seem to want to use his full powers for most of the time that we've seen him in power, but maybe this time he will. If procurement is your decision, you can't go ahead. This government has shown no competency, no commitment, no plan to address the climate crisis and to address the energy crisis. You have pulled us deeper and deeper into crisis. So the ethical thing to, thing to do, the best thing to do, is to let's have a serious national conversation urgently, and out of that, let's rethink how we deliver electricity. And I want to conclude by saying that for years now, decades, uh, more than a decade, we've been saying rethink electricity provision. It is broken in this country, right? Because one of the biggest problems we have is municipalities use electricity as a cash cow. They buy bulk from ESCOM and they sell and supposedly the income from that keeps them going as one of the big sources. That cannot be a justification for why citizens need to pay more and more and more and more. To pay incompetent civil servants salaries when they are not delivering anything. And again, let me take my time to say that in every municipality in our country, there are decent men and women who are struggling to keep things going, right? Again, make a distinction, but let's acknowledge that far too many of them have been compromised. So I want to put something up on the screen, but I just want to acknowledge another weakness in the way we've tried to approach all forms of activism for justice, including climate activism. So one of the things we do, like in the climate movement, is we target Lots of our messages aimed at the head, the mind, right? The brain, right? And we're talking about 1.5 degrees, you know, uh, 350 parts per million and so on. And I'll give you an example of how I've made this error, right? I was on a little inflatable boat in 2012 going to occupy an old rig in Greenland. And my two Greenpeace colleagues were looking at me and said, whew, this guy looks extremely nervous, and they said, uh, Kumi, don't worry, eh? if you fall in the ocean, what you're wearing, you'll survive at least two hours, and we'll be able to pull you out. Now, what they didn't realize is I don't swim, hardly swim. But I had the, and then I looked at the size of the, the waves, and I thought, hopefully they'll pull me out within two hours. And then I had this horrible thought. 
If this was the last, if this was the last action in my life for justice, the banner that I was carrying, the majority of my family, my friends, and my colleagues back home in Africa wouldn't know what it meant. It said, stop Arctic destruction. This was in 2011, 2012, when people didn't understand that the Arctic is a refrigerator and air conditioner of the, air conditioner of the planet. The fact that there's so little ice in the summer months means that we're all suffering all around the world, right? So anyway, I was arrested for a week, came home uh, to Durban and talking to some of my cousin's uh, kids, and one of them knew about environmental stuff and said, Uncle Kumi, what a stupid slogan, stop Arctic destruction. Nobody knew what the hell you were talking about. And then I said, darling, what would be a better slogan? She said, well, just saying, not having thought about it much, a better slogan would have been, save Santa Claus now. <laughs> think, but, but think about what she was saying. What she was saying is that many of us in leadership, not only in civil society leadership, in business leadership, in governmental leadership, we talk to ourselves. We do not humble ourselves, understand where people are, and build the conversation from where people are. So one of the things I want to conclude with a personal note that I've learned through a personal tragedy of our family losing Ricardo, who many of you knew as Ricky Rick Mercado, was Ricky challenged his mom and I to rethink our activism. And he said, you guys, you must understand what's happening here. Right? Because most of our messages are not reaching people's hearts and their passions. And sadly, it's Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and the people around him and that ilk who actually get it. Where they have forgotten about facts and truth. All they think is how do we weaponize the heart. I am not saying we must deviate from facts and truth. I am saying we must keep to it. But we cannot. And that's why we are promoting, we have set up a foundation called the Rikirik Foundation for the Promotion of Artivism, where we're trying to bring arts, culture, and activism to help us break the communications deficit that we have. Because the moment we find ourselves in requires a kind of mobilization and participation that we've never had before. And when they say participation as opposed to mobilization specifically, we need to recognize in South Africa right now, in every neighborhood in every community. If you think we're going to come together, set up a set of demands, go to the municipality and protest and do a successful protest and get anything out of it, you are being foolish. Because there's probably no money, no capacity and so on for what you need. So yes, we pay taxes and yes, we need all of those things. But in the absence of government being able to deliver as communities die across the country, it's important for us to also ask ourselves, how can we embarrass our government into action by organizing ourselves and engaging in creative actions that we are sometimes going to need to do some things that government should be doing, but do it in a way that embarrasses government into action. That, that's the only way we have to stop the slide, and hopefully we can have a substantially refreshed political outcome in the next election. But that thing you saw up there, was multiple ways in which you can participate. I end by saying, the struggle for justice is a marathon, not a sprint. And each of you who are in this room needs to use your privilege, your knowledge, and so on to ensure 
that we are not accepting that the world and country we find ourselves is the best that we can offer for ourselves as humanity. Thank you very, very much, and sorry for too much time.